Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hello, leaders. This is Lily, and we have the honor of having Dr. Alan Singer with us today. He is a director of Secondary Education Social Studies Teacher Education Programs at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York, where he is also a social studies educator and historian in the Department of Teacher Education Programs. Alan is the editor of Social Science Docket, a joint publication of the New York and New Jersey Councils for Social Studies. He is a graduate of the City College of New York and has a Ph.D. in American History from Rutgers University. Alan taught at a number of secondary schools in New York City, including Franklin K. Lane High School and Edward R. Murrow High School. He is the author of Education Flashpoints, written in 2014, Teaching to Learn, Learning to Teach, a handbook for secondary school teachers, second edition, 2013, Social Studies for Secondary Schools, fourth edition, 2014, Teaching Global History, 2011, and New York and Slavery, Time to Teach the Truth, 2008. He was a co-director for the New York State Great Irish Famine Curriculum Guide and the editor of the New York and Slavery Complicity and Resistance Curriculum Guide. Both curriculum projects were recipients of National Council for the Social Studies Program of Excellence Awards. Allen also has a regular blog on educational issues on the Huffington Post. Okay, so welcome, Dr. Alan Singer. Um, we are so happy to have you on our podcast. So um, as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm ready. Okay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Great. So my first question is, what inspired you to choose educational leadership as a career path? It's funny. I... I I didn't choose it as a career path. I was in college in the 1960s, and I was very involved in anti-war activity and uh, civil rights, social justice struggles. And uh, my father said to me one day, he said, so what are you, what are you gonna do for a living? I said, Dad, we're gonna make a revolution. And he said, you need a backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being a musician, right? Yeah. So. Um, well, I, I actually, so I decided to get my teaching certificate. That would be, that was my backup plan. Uh, but it was the uh, late 60s, early 70s, you know, teaching jobs. And I got a teaching assistantship at Rutgers University in a, in a history department for my PhD program. So I went to Rutgers to study revolution. Um, and, but my backup plan let me substitute teach while I was making revolution. Uh, one of the things I was doing, I was working as a community organizer in East New York, Brooklyn, and working in their summer camp. And 
trying to figure out how do you organize people for change. And I, I didn't consider myself a leader. I was just someone who was interested in studying in graduate school, working in the community, organizing for social change. Uh, one of the things I, I studied and eventually with my doctoral dissertation was on the uh, coal miners union, central Pennsylvania in the 1920s, that became a, a, a radical force for social change. And many of the leaders of this local union became leaders in organizing both the United Mine Workers Union in the 1930s, but also the CIO, which is now part of AFL-CIO. So a lot of my research was on this idea of leadership and how you organized for social change. One of the theorists who I based my work on is an Italian Marxist by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci was a leader of the Italian Communist Party during World, the World War I era. In the 1920s, he was imprisoned by Mussolini when Mussolini and the fascists came to power. Gramsci writes up all his ideas and is smuggled out of prison. He eventually dies in prison. And one of the ideas that Gramsci focused on was what he called the organic intellectual. And Gramsci argued that if we're going to have social change. We need these organic intellectuals, the conduits between the elite, between the theorists, between the academics, and the working class and the ordinary people. And he said that really the organic intellectuals were key because they translated the ideas from the higher plane and made them real to ordinary people. And that was something I began to focus on, this notion of who would become the organic intellectuals in the movement for social change. So that's kind of a long way around. In uh, 1978, I became a high school teacher. And I, as a high school teacher, social studies, I became involved in teaching uh, participation in government. And I began to work with high school students, turning them into organic intellectuals, people who could take ideas and bring them to amass ordinary people and help those people understand the ideas and then being about social change. So for me, uh, as a teacher and as an organizer, what I began to do was look at this key component of the organic intellectuals of working class, of ethnic movements, who could translate ideas and bring people to change. So that's what I've been doing for most of my career is preparing organic intellectuals. seems like it takes great communication skills to do that. Uh, I'm not sure about my communication skills. I, I, as an organizer, I always so modest people who are charismatic. Mm -hmm. And what I found is charisma might motivate people in the short term, but in the long term, charisma was not a positive force because charisma became a substitute for talking with people for thinking with people, for interacting with people. And so my style of leadership is anti-charismatic. Um, I don't want people to do something because they want to do what I do. I want people to do things because it makes sense to them. So my style of leadership is to not be charismatic, is to talk with people and through an exchange of ideas, help them come to see that this is something that makes sense. On the first day, 
when we start a new cohort at the mm -hmm. School of Education, I'll have you know, 15, 20 students, and I will say to them, at the end, while you're in this program, you have to do it my way, because you have to learn how to do these things. And when you're done, some of you will say, thank God, I never have to see him again. And some of you, I will work with for the rest of your careers, and the choice is yours. Some people decide mm -hmm. that the ideas I raise with them, the approach to teaching, the approach to young people, and a commitment to social justice and social change is something that they value and want to be part of. Other people say, I think I'm going to go my own way. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, they say it takes a great leader to lead people who aren't being paid. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, students in the hospital, they're paying. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. But, the, you know, the social change that you wish to, to make or that you see that you envision is powerful. So which quotes or quote about leadership speaks to you the most? Do you have a favorite? I have a couple. There's mm -hmm. Frederick. Uh, Frederick Douglass is a particular favorite of mine. You know, it goes something like without... Without struggle, there's no change. And I think that that's the case. There's a uh, civil rights song um, from the 1960s, which dates back to much earlier times. And it goes something like, They say that freedom is a constant struggle. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. Oh, Lord, we've been struggling so long. We must be free. We must be free. We must be free. We must be free. I, I think that's the key one for me. Freedom is a constant struggle. Wow. The struggle never ends. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, but it scare away your audience. <laughs> the message was um, just uh, awesome. So what type of leader are you inspired by? I mean, I got a little taste of that with the song, but what type of leader are you inspired by? I, uh, I don't know. That's a hard one. Um, I told you I'm, I'm very cautious about people, charismatic figures mm -hmm. and uh, because they, they lead by personality, not by ideas and example. Um, let me give you an, an example. We, our students have to pass a state-mandated assessment where they have to do a portfolio, and uh, they have to do a videotape in the classrooms. And they're very nervous. At TPA? At TPA. They have no idea what it looks like. I went to middle school classrooms, and I filmed me teaching at TPA-style lessons so they could watch me. I think leaders have to lead by example. And I, for me, when I see a leader leading by example, that's the most inspirational. I mean, there are leaders, historical leaders. Che Guevara has a you know, soft spot in my heart. Martin Luther King has a soft spot in my heart. These are people who led by example and put their life on the line. You know, And those are the things that I look for, people who lead by example. You have a lot of passion as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you were going to put together a plan for a change or a movement and you're looking for a good team, how would you build one? And what does that look like? One of the things that I learned working in schools 
is that you have to appreciate competence. Everybody is not going to agree with you. Everybody's not going to do it your way. But there are different ways to be competent. So I look for people who have a sense of confidence, but who are also competent. And I find that people who are confident and have confidence are people who can work with others. When people are not confident, they're always protecting themselves. And, so there's a uh, vulnerability. They feel vulnerable. But people who are not competent also always trying to hide. So those are the two things I look for. I don't look for people who agree with me. You know, one of the things I say to students, if I only worked with people who agree with me, I wouldn't be able to work with anybody. I said, sometimes I don't agree with me. <laughs> Alan, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. You know, one of the things that I've struggled with is impu- being impulsive. I have a, I guess I have a uh, adult ADHD. <laughs> you know, so I have a tendency to my mind races. And one, so one of the things I've had to do was to real realize maybe in my 20s that it, the problem wasn't that everybody else was slow it was that I was fast so I had to learn to let people work at their own speed mm-hmm. like, um, when I, I do group projects with kids and with adults you know I always say the teacher has to be an ex-officio member of a team on the other hand say that again an ex-officio member of every team mm-hmm. you're working with every team as as a, as a teacher or leader in the room, also with adults. But one of the things I had to learn was not to act on my own impulsivity and prevent other people from doing their job and figuring things out themselves. Yeah. So that's, it personally, that's always been a struggle for me. You know, it's funny, I can relate to that because quite often I've made decisions very impulsively. Like I, I tend to just make decisions very quickly. And I had to, and you know, sometimes it was good, sometimes not so good. Yeah. And I had to learn to be patient. I yeah. can relate to that. In, in meetings, I, I use the rule of three. Three people speak before I speak. That's it. And if only two people speak, I just don't speak. That's it. I pace myself. That's a good technique. That's good. I also, I write down things I want to say. And sometimes, by writing it down and waiting, other people will say them. Other people will arrive at it. I don't have to be the one to say it. It's more important that they figure it out and said it. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you. I think one of my greatest successes was as a high school teacher in the 1980s. I was teaching at an inner-city minority school called Franklin K. Wayne High School. And as a political activist coming in the 60s, I developed a strategy for working, organizing students, and teaching them to be leaders. We called it the Forum Club. And the Forum Club was a political action club in the school, and it was primarily made up of students in my um, participation in government classes. Um, However, these were voluntary activities. But the students in the club then became leaders, and they brought material back to all the participation in government classes in the school. Now, we organized around different issues. We organized around budget cuts. We organized against apartheid. We brought speakers into the school. We brought a speaker from the Af- African National Congress to the school. We brought uh, a speaker from um, Nicaragua, from the Sandinistas, into the school. 
Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of exciting things. We worked with one of the local con- congressional representatives his name was in Brooklyn. His name was Major Owens. And we worked with the community center where I was a community organizer. Maybe it was 1988, 1989. I don't remember exactly. Four of the young women in the club approached me. They said they wanted to go to Washington for a pro-choice rally. Could I uh, make it possible? And I said, if they raised it with the club and the club endorsed participation, I could then take them as their faculty advisor to the club. They spoke with the club. The club thought it was a good idea that this is something that people could participate in. They then went to Washington, and I took them uh, as part of a school trip. They were so excited that they then spoke with the club and proposed that the next year the club take this on as its major organizing task, uh, the right of women to choose. The following year, we organized a debate in school. We had a speaker from the National Organization for Women. We had a speaker from an anti-abortion group called Birthright. We had them on different days. It wasn't a debate. They debated with the students. We had a forum after school. Uh, Maybe 90 or 100 students attended. And based on these discussions, the students decided that they wanted to rent their own bus. And 42 students then organized to go to Washington for a another pro-choice rally, and they had squads, leaders, and this is before cell phones, and we had 42 students, and we had seven adults, and we went teachers, parents, and we go to Washington for the rally, and they created a video of their activities, and then they came back and showed the video to the classes, they laid discussions in the whole grade. Then they decide that they need to take this one step further. The students decided. The students decided they were going to take it on. And they, what they decided to do was they um, wanted, there was discussion at the time of whether par- the parental requirement for abortions. And they got involved in organizing against that. And they went on the Dr. Ruth program to speak out that parental requirement was unacceptable. One of the things that happens is in the warm up, the person from the show keeps trying to get them to discuss their own sexual activities. And the chairwoman, 17-year-old young girl from the group, gets up and says, I don't think you understand. We are not here to discuss our sexual activities. We are here as political activists to discuss the issues. They were really great. These are all working-class kids in a same minority communities in New York, Brooklyn. We then be, they, um, we lobby to get a health clinic for the school. And we start a campaign to get condom availability in uh, high schools in New York City. The issue on the condom availability is being discussed by the Board of Education because of the AIDS epidemic and concern for sexually transmitted diseases. So it's not just condoms. We're not just about birth control. They organized schools. They went to speak. And they won. They helped to sway the Board of Ed and get condom availability in New York City high schools. And as a result of their campaign, they got a health clinic for the school. This was my all-time most successful campaign because students learned to be leaders. Well, that speaks a lot to your leadership. It does, but what was more important was that they became the leaders. Right. And that's my goal. I, I guess my, my concept of leadership is that I prepare people to be leaders to be what I called organic intellectuals. So I wonder what that would look like today. Well, we've run similar. I'm, run, I'm engaged in another campaign right now. One oh, of my alumni, who's now a cooperating teacher and a doctoral student at Hofstra, teaches at a high school, a vocational high school in the South Bronx, 
which is the poorest community in the congressional district of the United States. And we are running a campaign with his students, both a literacy campaign and a political action campaign. His students are organizing to get metal detectors taken out of the high schools. Interesting. Because what they argue is the metal detectors take schools and turn them into prisons. Mm -hmm. And that they feel they're being treated like they're criminal when they're students. And they feel and they know they're being targeted because they're all black and Latino. So we are running this campaign. As a matter of fact, next week, um, we, the students are presenting their campaign at a conference on social activism at the Museum of the City of New York. So one of the ways that the teacher and I address this is I write for Huffington Post, and I write about their activities. They can then uh, write in onto the blog. So it's a way of publicizing what they're doing. And they, we've met with other schools. They've met with political officials. So that is what the campaign now is, not just the metal detectors, but it's to treat students as students, not as criminals, and to cut the school-to-prison pipeline. And again, the, uh, the, my fr- he's now my friend, my former student. He's w- doing these things with his students, and they will become leaders as well. I would love to have him on our show. So tell us... What would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture or their environment? That's why I sing freedom is a constant struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and then you sing that song. This is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was at the 2004 Republican National Convention. It was in New York City, and we had this enormous picket line protest. And I had about 50 uh, people from Hofstra came. And one of my students at Hofstra, graduate student, uh, turns to me and she says, Alan, how long have we been marching? And I said, I've been marching for 40 years. And she said, no, no, I'm serious. How long have we been marching? And I said, I've been marching for 40 years. It doesn't stop. If you stop, you go back. And you can't go back. You have to keep organizing, keep struggling, keep educating, and keep preparing new people to be leaders. Thank you. So, you know, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? It's, it's funny, because I'm, I'm also an academic. I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a book project on abolitionists in the American abolitionist 19th century with a focus on New York State abolitionists and African-American abolitionists. And this is the question I'm asking. 1835, abolitionists were scorned in the in 1850, they were ignored, and in 1860, they won and they end slavery. So how, the question for me that I'm trying to understand is, how does a movement go from the margins to the center of national interest, national concern, of people, people's attention? Because you need to do two things. You need to bring it to the forefront so people hear you. And you also have to build institutional structure so it doesn't just fade away. So those, that's what I'm trying to understand. That's what I, I'm always reading and thinking and writing about. Wow. Okay, great. So what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Maybe one or two because I know you're an avid reader. Yeah. Hofstra has uh, every year we have a, a freshman book. And this year the book is by a... Um, sociologist of science by the name of Collins and it's um, are we all scientists now I wouldn't say it's a great book but it's a challenging book I've been reading it and I actually did a video 
for Hofstra on the book for the freshmen. Because one of the things that concerns me very much is there's a lot of science denial in the United States, issue of climate, especially on the vaccines. And uh, people... And cancer. Cancer. People dismiss Mm -hmm. science. And uh, so what this book does is it explores what is a scientific approach. One of the issues on science, and I've, I've always loved reading about science, one of the issues about science is I think that there are terms are used in science, terms are used colloquially, it's the same word, it means different things. In uh, colloquially, when we say a fact, it's something that never changes, it's forever. Scientists recognize that facts change. Facts change as we learn and get new information. For scientists, facts are temporary. They're very strongly supportive. Best example I give is the uh, subatomic particles. Oh, gosh, you're speaking really over my head. Okay, but when I was in high school, there were three subatomic particles made up an atom. The neutron, the electron, and the proton. Today, and that was fact. Mm -hmm. Well, today we recognize there are dozens of subatomic particles that weren't even known when I was in high school. So we have a new fact. Now, the subatomic particle, for scientists, that was a fact. But it was a temporary fact, strongly held fact, until we had new information. A lot of the public don't understand that, that scientific facts strongly held, strongly established, but every scientist recognizes it could be new discoveries. That's interesting because I, 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 that's a thought I'd never had. Yeah. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? I read the New York Times. Okay. But I have to tell you, I start with the sports page. I, sports helps me to keep my mind focused. The other thing I... What, how does it help you to keep your mind focused? It, it takes my, my mind off the problems of the world okay. and of life. And, it, you know, it's a separate universe. I also like to bike ride. And I do long-distance biking. And I always carry my notepad. And I find the biking clears my mind. And then the last thing that helps me keep myself focused is uh, just hanging out with my grandchildren. How many? I only have two, but uh, they're 11-year-old twins. We live in the same apartment building, so I I just go visit them. (laughs) Wow, so So that that may lead to my next question. That that actually does lead to my next question because I know that my son keeps me current. So, um, you know, many educational leaders, they, ha- they put in really long hours. Um, so what advice would you give them about maintaining that life balance? All right. And then my other question to that, my, you know, in addition to that, is do you use any particular technology that would help maintain well, that balance? I'm not good at maintaining balance. Let me okay. say that. Okay. I, I, I work constantly, and okay. I'm always uh, – you have to – Having a family has been very important to me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know now my grandchildren. But the other thing is, um, there are a couple of activities that help me. One of them is bicycling, and that I have I just organized to do it. And the other, and this is funny, I like to make baked bread, and I always start from scratch, and I knead the bread by hand. And people say. Why don't you just, why are you kneading the bread? Why don't you just buy the bread? Why don't you just put it in a machine? 
I said, because the most important part of the bread is the kneading of the bread. It Again, it's it just so relaxing, so focused. You need things like that to you help you. You don't look like you eat a lot of bread. Uh, no, I don't <laughs> eat it. I just bake it. <laughs> just bake it. <laughs> is it any good? <laughs> yeah, my bread is pretty good. Oh, yeah. My grandchildren like it. I would like love it. to try it. Straighten out your mind. I guess it's the Zen Buddhist experience. That's really important, especially when you're in you know situations where you have that responsibility for you know leading others. So my last question. Mm-hmm. If you can go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Freedom is a constant struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Remember. Yeah. It, 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 kind of my motto is you only walk this way once, so you might as well kick ass. I like That's that. It. I like that. You only go this way once. I, 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 I'm an existentialist. Mm-hmm. You make it this. You make the best decision possible based on the evidence you have available, and then you act based on that decision. And you could organize and struggle your entire life, and it may not work. It might not work. It might be you were right, but conditions were wrong. It might be you were wrong, but you can't know until you try. You have to do it. That's the test of whether the idea works. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Okay. So I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Thank you so much for being on our show. All right. Thank you for having me. Okay. And have, a, have a wonderful day. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye. Bye.